Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm recording this on a Monday, and it's one of those Mondays where I just feel like it's like a... I don't know, soft, a soft open, slow start, soft start. What do you want to call it? Where you don't want to work on a Monday? I'm feeling that. So if you're feeling that way, it's okay. We all have those days and I'm okay. You know, I'm going to do this. And I had an interview earlier today and then I'm going to zone out for a little bit because, you know, we got to give ourselves breaks. I always feel like there's obviously a tipping point where it gets into like depression. If we're struggling with a mental illness, we're, we're not ever going to want to do anything. But I also think there's something really important about our body telling us when we need a break and us listening. <laughs> and I pride myself on listening, but I also want to acknowledge and be honest with each of you that I don't always do that. And sometimes I push through, especially because I mean, like anybody else, I have responsibilities. I have people that count on me. I have things that have to get done. And so there are times when I can't listen to my body telling me I need to rest. Um, but today's one of those days where I had that interview and I have this and then I can, I can just rest. So I'm going to give myself a break and I encourage you and give you full permission to give yourself a break as well, because we don't do it often enough. Let's be honest. Okay enough about me, enough about what I'm going through. We have nine questions today. They're all wonderful. Let's get into the first one. Now, this question says, hey, Katie, as a therapist, do you ever find yourself anxious or nervous around certain patients, particularly when they are self-destructive or suicidal? My therapist seemed legitimately nervous our last few sessions. Her leg was bouncing and everything. I know she struggles with anxiety herself, and that makes me feel bad for telling her how bad I'm struggling because I don't want to stress her out, but I pick up on her anxiety easily even when it's subtle. I know she's the pro and I'm the patient, but she is human too. I love this question because so often, I guess all the time, I get questions about the therapeutic relationship without people realizing that that's what it's about because the therapeutic relationship is different, right? It's not like a normal relationship where I tell you what I'm going through. You tell me what you're going through like we would as friends over, you know, over breakfast or lunch or, you know, cocktails and appetizers. Like we don't have that inner, like there isn't that exchange with a therapist. It's it's mainly like a one-way street where we tell them what we're going through and they assess that with us and help push us towards the goals that we're working on, right? And so when things aren't, balanced like normal, we can struggle with that as patients, especially if we're people pleasers. We can push back against that wanting to know how our therapist is doing and 
not control their emotions, but like want to please them and do certain things just right. Or we can struggle to open up because I don't want to overwhelm my therapist, right? We can have a lot of concerns. And some of that comes from a struggle with boundaries and people pleasing. And some of that just comes from like being a human and wanting to connect with others and, and not wanting to upset someone, especially someone who's helping us. And so I just wanted to get that all out, that preamble, because I, for any of you out there, if you're going through this, I want you to just consider where it's coming from for you because everybody's different and it's not always a bad thing. I just always have to consider those things, okay? So the first question, do I ever find myself anxious or nervous around patients when they're being self-destructive or suicidal? The the short answer is no, but I can be concerned for your safety. And that, I guess you could say, makes me nervous or anxious, but I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't characterize it as that. I would just say that, you know, I'm worried for you, right? I want you to be safe. I want you to be okay. And if I sense that you're not, I'm going to be concerned. I think the reason I would say I'm not anxious about it is it's not uncontrollable worry. It's worry that I can control through safety plans and check-ins and all the protocols and things that I've talked about over the years that I put in place with my patients when I think they could harm themselves or someone else. And so that keeps the anxiety at bay. But I guess you could say I was nervous but it's not around them. Again, I'm not nervous in session. I'm more concerned outside of session when they're not with me. Because when they're with me, I know they're safe, right? And so that those are my thoughts about that. And the fact that you know your therapist struggles with anxiety, I cannot emphasize this enough in personal and professional relationships. But if we see someone, you know, shaking their leg or acting kind of anxious, nine times out of 10, it has nothing to do with us. And the reason I say that is because for any of us who've struggled with anxiety, I'll put my hand up. I'm one of those people. We know that most of the time, we don't even know what we're anxious about. We're just anxious about everything. I'm replaying conversations I had 10 years ago. I'm nervous if I'm going to get everything done today that I need to get done. I'm so anxious about things that are going on in my life, in my head, and that's what's stirring me up. It's very rare that we have anxiety, A, that we know where it comes from, but B, that is in direct correlation to a patient or to even like someone in our, that we're in relationship with. It That's not as common, again, because worry, it's uncontrollable worry that is like technically speaking, is part of generalized anxiety disorder, what would char- we'd characterize as anxiety. And so I feel like what you might be seeing in your therapist is their anxiety. And could they be concerned or worried about you outside of session? Yes. Would we call that an anxiety disorder or say that we're making them anxious? I probably wouldn't say that. And I also, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm very, I'm rambly with this one, but I just want to, there's a lot, a lot of roads to go down. But I also am very cautious and I'm not perfect with this, but I always try to be cautious about saying making someone feel like you can't make your therapist anxious. That's a choice that she or he, I think it's a she, yeah, she, that she has. And she, if she's allowing something to affect her, then that is, is her feeling anxious and allowing that uncontrollable worry to happen. And I don't mean allow in the way of like, she's excited about it and wanting it to happen. We just can't make someone feel a certain kind of way. And consider it from this perspective. Let's say I'm a people pleaser, because I am, and I want someone to stop feeling bad. I can't make them feel good, right? It's not possible. So how could I make someone feel anxious? I can't. I don't I don't have the power, right? And so I just want you to consider that. And so her struggles are her own. My guess would be obviously a complete hypothesis. I have no 
you know, foundation for this, but I would hypothesize that she was having a stressful day. Maybe she had a lot going on. She could have had another patient who was in crisis. That happens a lot too, where I'm a little, uh, and I, I hate to admit it, but it's it's true that sometimes when I have a patient in crisis, I can be a bit distracted in other sessions because I know I have to check in with them in that 10 minute window between sessions. Um, or maybe I'm waiting for a call back from the hospital. You know, there can be a lot going on that frankly has nothing to do with you. And so what I would encourage you to do is to mention this to your therapist. And I know you're thinking like, well, why would I tell her if you're telling me that it has, doesn't have anything to do with me? It's not about that. It's about the fact that you're noticing it and you're finding it distracting. You see her her leg bouncing and you've noticed some things. We have to bring that up. And the reason we have to bring it up isn't to call her out and make her feel bad or anything like that. Again, can't make people feel a certain way, right? Um, but it's more so that she is aware that you pick up on that stuff and can acknowledge it in session and talk about it and maybe even tell you a little bit about where it's coming from. Like I had a patient, this is like eons ago when I, my, one of my first jobs at the eating disorder treatment center, it was like inpatient and I was her primary therapist and I was kind of fidgety that day. And she mentioned it to me. She said, you're fidgeting and I find it very distracting. And I was like, oh, I said, I'm so sorry. It has nothing to do with you. It's because, because I was in school still. I was like, it's because I have this big paper that's due tomorrow and it's just been stressing me out. And I apologize. I will separate the two. And that was good for me to know. It was a, a really big learning for me to not only recognize and acknowledge my own emotional experience, but also how that could affect my patients. And the fact that I kind of need to keep like a, you know, a wall between the two where then, you know, I'm not letting it bleed into one or the other, right? We have to keep things separated. And I think compartmentalization is really important when you're a therapist and it's something to always keep in mind. Obviously we're human. I'm not saying that we're, I'm not a robot, but <laughs> we need to, you know, keep that wall up to kind of protect our patients. So bring it up because I think it's important for her to know. And it's also important to talk about um, because I am personally very curious about you picking up on it and maybe how that applies to other things in your life. Cause I'm wondering if you're a people pleaser, I'm wondering how boundaries are for you. And if you're maybe a highly sensitive person, I have a lot of questions to try to figure out what's going on, but that would be a question that I would have for you. And those were, would be kind of the avenues I'd want to go down to learn more. And then we can both learn, right? And it's helpful for everybody. I hope that answer helps and makes sense. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, hey, Katie, why do I almost always feel fine on the day of therapy? Hmm, interesting. It's like the week can be really horrible. And then as soon as I step into the room with my therapist, I am completely fine. It's like my brain is back to normal. and I don't have any mental illness at all. I then don't see any of my problems or thoughts that I had in the week that as quote unquote that bad. And I tend to look at them very differently than when I'm in the moment. I feel like I'm whiny or over-exaggerating everything and I'm making it all up so I can feel special about myself because right now in the moment, I'm fine, right? Do you have any idea why this could be? Sorry if there are any mistakes. Greetings from Germany or as we say, Lube Grub. I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing that right and I apologize to all of my German friends. Okay, so and there are a bunch of comments on this too, but let's just dig right into this from the beginning because I think I'm going to kind of answer some of those comments as we go through this. So, there are many reasons we can feel fine on the day of therapy. One being that we finally have the outlet that we've been so desperately needing and the validation maybe we've just been seeking. We just have that place we can finally go and dump all of our shit, right? And so we're like, oh, 
Even just knowing we have that makes us feel better. It's almost like um, when you, and I know this is a horrible analogy, but it just pops into my head when I was reading this. I was like, you know when that your car is making this really annoying noise and then you take the mechanic and it stops making the noise? I feel like that's kind of what's happening, but in the therapeutic way, where it's like, finally, we know that we're going to have access to care and we're like, ah, and that relief or that breath out or that uh, sense of support makes the things that felt terrible not feel so terrible. And I find this again and again that my patients will say, well, I feel okay now. And I'm like, well, tell me what was happening last week. And that's part of the reason, I know a lot of you are going to cringe, part of the reason why I love journaling so much is because in the moment we can write about how painful something is and how terrible we feel and what's going on and the emotions that are coming up. And all of that is incredibly helpful when maybe in the moment we're like, well, I don't know. I feel okay now. Oh, feels like I'm whining. Ooh, right? Then we have that to fall back on. We could be reading through these journal entries to our therapist and feel like it's not as real as maybe we thought it was, but that doesn't matter. We just need to get that information out because most of your time is spent feeling shitty. It's just like that one hour or that one day where we're like, huh, it's okay. And that's not acceptable, right? You know, six days out of seven feeling bad is it's not a good ratio. And so that's one of the reasons. Also, um, I just want to look through the questions. Do you have any idea why this could be? Okay. Another reason. So that's the most common is the fact that we finally have this outlet. And then we're like, oh, finally. And then we feel better just having that outlet. But another is sometimes when we're put on the spot, we can get anxious or overwhelmed in session. A lot of you told me you like get really nervous. And like even the first question before, like my therapist, I'm worried I'm going to make them anxious. We can have a lot of concerns when we're speaking with someone. And if they're putting us on the spot, asking us how we're feeling, what's going on. Sometimes our mind just goes blank. It's kind of like a defense mechanism. We're like, oh, somebody wants to know my deepest, darkest, ugh, ah, shut, shut it down, shut it down. And we just like cannot. Or if we've been so overwhelmed all week, even the thought of trying to dig through that can feel overwhelming, defense mechanism or dissociation, right? Any of those coping skills and things can come out in full force to kind of prevent us from having to acknowledge how shitty we might have been feeling. And so it all makes sense that way. Now, the comments on this said this, like agree, right? This, as soon as I'm with my therapist, my mind goes blank. I can't think of anything that's gone on over the past week. And I've even tried journaling, but the same thing happens. As soon as I try to write it down, I go blank. Why? My guess here would be the overwhelm. And that can cause the dissociation or defense mechanisms to come out. It could also be um, kind of like a, I don't want to call it self-destruction, but it's almost when we we like won't allow ourselves to feel a certain way because we like invalidate immediately. It's kind of, I don't even know what the word I'm really looking for, but it, essentially that's happening. And so the even the attempt to acknowledge, we're like, absolutely not. You're just making this up and all that shit talking can happen. And it could be a trauma response. It could be maybe our family never argued in front of each other. And we're kind of like a waspy type family. Therefore, any conflict or any confrontation is like makes us super uncomfortable. Or it could be a people pleaser like me. And that's where my discomfort with, you know, conflict comes from. Is I'm like, oh, everybody should get along. Oh, I don't know how to manage. And so any discomfort, I know we think of that with conflict between other people, but what about internal conflict? That can be just as uncomfortable. And so that shutdown or that defense mechanism tells us something. So I would just let your therapist know a way to get around this is instead of trying to force it through to be like, no, I need to talk about things in therapy. I need to not shut down, right? Instead of doing that, 
What if instead we just get curious about this shutdown? Be like, I don't know why. Every time I try to write things down, or every time I try to talk to you, my mind just goes blank. <sighs> Let's talk about it. That's what I would dig into. Sometimes that's a secret way in is instead of trying to get in the front door, right? And blast through with like, what's happening? I need to talk about this. I need to vent. How come I can't think of anything? How come I can't share here? Blah, blah. We keep trying to push through that door when it's like, you know, metal and locked. Um, instead, we can be like, how come I, my mind goes blank? Like, I, why do we think this happens? What is it for me? Do I get so overwhelmed? Is it a stress response? Is it that I'm highly sensitive? And even the thought of sharing or saying those words out loud or writing them down, oh, freeze, go, you know, shut down, whatever. Like, where is it coming from? It's okay to just be curious about something that is like holding up our therapy. We don't have to be able to talk it all through right away. We don't have to be able to journal it out. We just have to be open to discussing that that's happening. Does that make sense? And sometimes removing it, even just that little bit from the emotional state, right? We're not getting into like, I'm so frustrated. Why do I keep shutting down? We're considering I this is happening. Let's be a detective about it just that little removal from that emotional state can soothe us enough that we can actually maybe see something more clearly or be able to answer some questions that we weren't able to. And so give that a try because sometimes it's like a sneaky way in. Now, there was another comment that said to add to this, it's like I go into a zone for therapy and I put up walls to protect myself when going into session. Why could this be? Is this normal? I've been working with my therapist for nearly three years now, so I shouldn't be putting up barriers when I'm in session. Thanks. It's defense mechanisms. They're probably old patterns from childhood. They're protective. They're there to keep us safe. And so again, instead of pushing through and trying to like be really vulnerable and share things, let your therapist know, hey, I've been seeing you for a long time. I like seeing you. I still find myself shutting down when session comes, walls up. I go into this zone. It's like, mm mm. I don't know why this happens. Some of it might be feeling like it's too much too fast, or it could be that, again, this old pattern where you're like, well, everybody else I've let in in my past has really hurt me. And so why would I trust anybody ever again? I hear that a lot from a lot of you. You're like, best to keep people away, right, Katie? And I'm like, no, best to understand why we feel the urge to keep people away. That is the right answer. Um, and so digging into that, instead of beating yourself up, for not being able to do it. Let's just be curious, not judgmental, curious about why this is happening and letting them know that you just find yourself shutting down and putting up these walls. And some of it, I think, leave it to your therapist. You don't have to have all the answers. I pride myself in being able to ask questions in a way that are kind of disarming to help people feel comfortable and confident and okay. And I feel like every therapist can do that. Now, another comment on this says, as an add-on, what if you forget everything that you needed to talk about when session comes? A lot of times I write things down and at the time, oh, and at the time, and then I feel as though it's such a big emotion. But then when the session comes, I forget to read it or I feel as though it's being dramatic. I was being dramatic when I wrote it. Oh, interesting judgment immediately because I feel fine when therapy comes. I hope that relates to the question. Thank you so much for all that you do. Of course. Um, read them anyways. And even say, now as I read this, I want you to know I feel extremely dramatic and like I was overreacting, but you know, I, I need to read it anyways because it felt real in the moment. Because really what's happening is shame, guilt, and embarrassment, which is a trauma response. I'm very curious about your past because I wonder 
where this is coming from or what's happening. But um, again, that's not your question. That's not what we're getting into here. But I feel like if we can just, again, be curious and not judgmental about why we're wanting, why we feel this way and what's going on, what's coming up for us. And are there other times in our life when we feel like the experience that we're having isn't valid, that we are dramatic? Has anybody in our, our life ever told us we're way too sensitive? Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so sensitive? I hate when people say that new sensitive as like a bad word when I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, but let's dig into that and why we have that judgment so quickly and keep writing. Okay. I think that's a really great way in and keep reading it. Even if it doesn't feel valid now, or you feel like you're being a whiner, I don't even care. Tell your therapist you're feeling that way and read it anyways. Okay. It'll get better. Trust me. It's through this, it's through the expression of what's happening, regardless of how we think and feel and getting that validation and support from our therapist that the healing can begin. Okay. So just hang in there. Okay. Another question says, oh my God, yes, this outside of sessions, I even rehearse what I'm going to bring up. So I get everything right. Um, when I'm in session, it all goes away. Even if it's written down, I feel embarrassed to look at my notes and say them out loud because they seem so inconsequential. How can I get around this? I feel like we've kind of talked about this already. And the final one says, I'm almost the opposite. I stuff everything down and do fine. That is my therapy session. It's closer. I start to struggle. My anxiety goes through the roof. I think it's because I know it's time to talk and process or work through the tough stuff. Yes. A lot of times we can sense that release coming. And for some of us, like myself included, it means I get to just cry and like let all the emotions out. And it's a great release. So leading up, even driving to session, I'm like, I'm already feeling myself like the emotions are building. And that's because I'm a, I'm a dump everything person at therapy. And for others of us, as that anxiety builds, as we know we're going to get that release, we shut down because it's too much, right? We start to feel overwhelmed. Oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't usually feel my feelings. Boom, freeze, shut down, dissociate, panic attack, whatever. Um, so yeah, you are correct. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. But first, a little choppy stick. Okay. Question three says, hi, Katie. What is high-functioning depression? And how is it different from major depression or persistent depression? How do you overcome high-functioning depression? And when do you know it's over? Also, is it harder to heal from high-functioning depression because you're going to work or school, etc.? And is it harder as a therapist to help someone with high-functioning depression? I'd love to hear your thoughts and thanks for your work, support, and information, of course. Now, I have some videos about high-functioning depression. So you can just put into the YouTube uh, search, high-functioning depression, Katie Morton, it'll come up. And high-functioning depression is essentially, it's, it's like how it sounds. It's when we're able to still do everything we do in life, but we're like barely getting by, right? We're like totally white knuckling it, like gripped, like uh, just barely getting through. And this could mean that we do all the things we need to do during our day. We get home at let's say 6 p.m. and we just crash and we just zone out or can't do anything else. Sleep, get up, do it again, right? And we're just barely hanging on. We just do this over and over and over and over. And it's exhausting. Um, high function depression could also be another term for what I would call uh, why? Oh, dysthymia. All of a sudden it bopped out of my head, but it came back. Don't worry. Dysthymia is a low grade depression. I don't say low grade to mean it's not as serious, it's long lasting low-grade depression. So it means we don't quite meet the criteria for major depressive disorder. So it's not as life disrupting maybe, but it hangs in there and essentially takes away all our joy and makes everything much more laborious and take a lot more energy. So it is 
just as detrimental to our overall well-being. It just is a lower, it's like that annoying thing that just continues to happen versus maybe like one big thing or feeling like shit immediately and not being able to do anything. This just like hangs around and makes our life shitty. And so it could be that dysthymia. Now, in order for us, and I have a video about dysthymia, um, it usually, I think for diagnostic purposes, if my memory serves me, if we are younger, if we're a kid, like a teenager, it has to go on for a year. And if we're an adult, I think it's two years, but I could be wrong. Maybe it's six months in a year. You guys, you, you correct me because I did not look this up before. And frankly, things like that aren't important to me because if you're feeling bad and even if it's a low grade depression that's been going on for a few months, I still would call it dysthymia and I would still want to treat it and I would still want to better understand it. That's where the DSM kind of irks me. Um, okay. Back. Let's stay focused, right? Back to the question. So how is it different? High functioning depression can be no different in symptoms. It's just that our level of resilience or our ability to like ugh, muscle through and push through is greater. So it's not that the depression is any less. It's just that we are pushing through more or for whatever reason, we have that chutzpah or that oomph to like do it. And like, anyways, like, push back. Um, and major depression and persistent depression, persistent isn't really a diagnose, like it's not a diagnosable term. It would just mean that your depression's lasted for a long time. Persistent just means that it's like around all the time and it's probably been around for a long time. Major depressive disorder, the criteria is that we m- must feel um, like anhedonia, so a lack of enjoyment in the things we used to enjoy, an overall feeling of just low, sad mood. And then there's other symptoms that you have to have. I want to say it's like four out of, but it's like changes in appetite, changes in sleep, a struggle with concentration. There's a lot of different ones. And that has to go on for most days for two weeks. And that's kind of how you diagnose that. But persistent depression would pretty much just mean that our depression is persistent. I mean, you know that word, you know what it means. It's it's not a new criteria that has to be met. Um, and then how do you overcome high functioning depression? And when do you know it's over? Um, the way to overcome depression in general is to get treatment and better understand. So treatment looks like medication and therapy or therapy on its own. Uh, medication alone isn't going to fix it. And I'm, I just want to say that because I think a lot of people assume that, oh, but I feel better and the medication like fixed it. That means that the medication is just essentially taking away some of the symptoms that we're having as a result of our depression, but we haven't made any life or behavioral changes. Therefore, if we stop the medication or if the medication's effectiveness like kind of poops out for us, the symptoms will come right back. And so that's why I always encourage people, not to mention research proves that medication plus therapy renders the best result. But the way to really battle depression is obviously with medication. And then in therapy, it's more about the behavioral techniques and thought techniques, meaning I want you to pay attention to how you're talking to yourself. I'm going to want you to get your body moving at least three times a week. I'm going to want you to look for the positives in your day, little things that are, um, we want to be like seekers of positivity. And I don't mean toxic positivity. I mean, small wins. Like, oh, somebody opened the door for me. That's so nice. Yay. Let's celebrate that small win. I hit all the green lights on my way to Starbucks in the morning. Hallelujah. Right. I uh, got up and my husband made me breakfast. Yay. Like, I don't even care. Whatever it is, whatever it is that maybe sometimes doesn't go your way and today it goes your way. I want you to be looking for those things that are good. It didn't rain today. Yay. Right. 
I got in the car and thought I had to get gas and forgot that I filled my tank yesterday. All right. All those things are things that we can say yay about. And I want you to seek those out. So those are some of the ways that we would overcome it. It's a lot of what I would call cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. Um, that's why we're pay, like tracking our thoughts, paying attention to the thoughts that we have. And we're going to use bridge statements to move them from like negativity island into like a more neutral space. We're going to seek out those positives. We're going to get our body moving and take care of our basic needs, meaning we're going to shower regularly, eat regularly, drink water, sleep, you know, all the things that we know we're supposed to do. But those are the things that once we get that, those symptoms at least a little bit under control, hence the medication, right? For drowning in the symptoms, I can tell you a million things that you can do at home. Are you going to be able to do them? Nope. So that's why medication is, is part of this pie, right? It's part of this whole piece is that we need that component to be able to do some of the other things. Um, and so that's kind of how we heal. And also, is it harder to heal because you're going to work? No, it's not harder to heal because we're still going to work or school. That means that our stress level could be higher. But I, even then, I wouldn't agree because even my patients with um, major depressive disorder who aren't able to go to work or school, the stress level is still high and the overwhelm is still there and the depressive symptoms are still there. So I think it's all equal. And then um, someone said, is, is it harder as a therapist to help someone with high functioning depression? No, not at all. And honestly, in some ways, I think it's a little bit maybe easier. It might be harder for me to recognize that it's depression up front because they are doing all those things. It might take me a couple extra sessions of understanding what they're going through in their thought process before I would be like, oh, they're just still doing this, but they feel like shit. Um, but I don't even know if it'd take me that. But either way, that's something that could happen, right? And then I think because someone's high functioning, to me, what that usually means or equates to is higher resilience or just more um, more push to want to try to make things better, more of that motivation that can be so difficult for those of us who are depressed to get. So I might use that to my advantage and that might actually make it a little bit easier or be you know, slightly less laborious on my part. And now there was a comment on this says, as an add-on, how can you help help someone with high functioning. Oh, this is kind of, we're taking a detour here. And I put this one in because I wanted to talk about it as well. It says, how can you help someone with high functioning alcoholism? Okay. So we switch from depression to alcoholism. I don't know if this is even a thing. It kind of is. And we'll talk about it. But a good friend of mine has a mostly good life, good and deep relationships with both family and friends. She likes her work, has regular income, hobbies, and interests that she loves. The only thing she doesn't have under control are her cravings. And therefore she drinks almost daily and hides it from everyone but me. When she relapses, her borderline characteristics also get more intense. Ooh, I have a lot of people with BPD who struggle with alcoholism. Um, she has a therapist that she likes and has been inpatient a couple of times in the last year, which didn't really help. She also doesn't seem to be able to make use of AA meetings. They're too spiritual for her. A lot of people struggle with that. We talk about it a lot, but I don't really know how to help her. I think she should probably tell her therapist and maybe some other close people. I've only known her for a few months, but I hate seeing her struggle so much. What can you do as a friend to support someone with an addiction? Sometimes it seems like I'm more invested in her recovery than she is. That's a big red flag. So how can I make sure I don't take on too much responsibility for her? Yes, yes, because I want her to recover so badly. Okay, you've kind of answered your own question a little bit. Now, you... Not to say should, because I don't like to shit on things, but like it's not healthy to be more invested in someone's recovery than they are. 
I've talked about this as a therapist, but it's important as friends and family as well. We can't work harder than they are working because that the power dynamic is off, the effort is off, and they're the one that at the end of the day has to actually do the work because you can't be around her 24-7 pulling bottle. That's completely codependent. And that's actually why people with people in their life who are alcoholics or addicts need to go to Al-Anon. It's essentially like AA for the family and it helps you see your role in their addiction. So we want to like, I'm telling pump the brakes here. All we can do, and I want you to please hear me. I know you care about them and that is lovely, but all we can do is check in on them and support positive behavior. That's it. We can't make them stop drinking. We can't put them into treatment. We can't force them to not want to relapse. We can't make, we can't in some way make AA work for her. We just can't do those things. It's out of our capability. And if we, the more we try, it's, it's like we're spinning our wheels, making ourselves worse. And that's when you, you know, you can harm yourself by trying to help. It's almost like we're uh, setting ourselves on fire to keep somebody else warm. I talk about this a lot. It's really unhealthy relationship behavior. And it usually happens to those of us who are more empathic or highly sensitive, where we just feel for other people. We want to save everyone. But in the act of trying to save, it's like jumping into the water to try to save someone from drowning without having a life preserver on. We're going to drown too. They'll probably push on us to get out and we'll be, you know. And so, just keep that in mind that all we can do, and every time you want to do more, think I've done all I can do. I've checked in and I've supported positive behavior. And then the choice is up to her. If, like I said, we can't make people feel certain ways and we can't make people want to get better. They have to want it for themselves. And I know it's hard and we can talk about it in therapy, the guilt or the upset that we feel, but that doesn't change the fact that we can't make someone recover that that's just how it is. And I'm sorry. And when it comes to high functioning alcoholism, if anybody's wondering what that means, it's just like, a, uh, what are we talking about? High functioning depression, where we're able to do the things we need to do in our life, probably just barely. And we're just, you know, but still engaging in alcoholic behavior, any other chance we get, it just hasn't like effect. We haven't lost our job or our family yet. And it hasn't gotten to the point where we, it's completely unmanageable, even though it really is. We're just like, do you know what I mean? We're trying to keep everything together. Usually people with high functioning alcoholism have a lot of people in their lives who are codependent in some ways or do things to kind of assist them without realizing it. They could come from addicts in their own family. They could have been an addict themselves. There can be some of that like behavior that helps prop up their life and keep them going. That That's often the case, not always, but often the case. Okay, question number four it says, hi, Katie, how do you help a partner to more fully slash better understand where you're at in your mental health journey when it feels like they just don't get it? I've been in therapy working through my anxiety, phobias, and depression that I've been keeping bottled up and hidden basically since I was a teen. I'm 33 now. Thanks to therapy, I have now been able to start opening up with my partner about what's going on, but they just don't seem to get it. My partner is very supportive of me needing help around my mental health. It just doesn't feel like they understand that this is significantly more than just me going through a rough patch or some situations being uncomfortable for me. This leads them to un unintentionally making comments or passing judgments that feel so devastatingly invalidating. Where I can, I try to explain why what they have said is deeply hurtful. And while they're always apologetic, it is cl still clear that they just aren't understanding. 
I'm trying hard to not be completely discouraged by this as sharing my phobias in particular has felt like a massive effort to push through the shame and embarrassment only to to continue to feel unseen and misunderstood. Do you have any suggestions as to how I can hopefully help them understand? Also, many thanks to you and your videos for helping to convince me that with help, life could be better. Of course, you're doing all the hard work and I'm proud of you. Now, this is tough. First of all, I want to say I'm really sorry. It sucks when those we love the most just don't understand what's happening. But I have a a few ideas. Now, obviously, you've been communicating a ton. And that is awesome. And that's always like my first go-to is like, try to talk to them, try to explain to them, send them a video or give them an excerpt from a book. Don't give them a whole book. I've had patients do this in the past. They're like, I want them to understand my binge eating disorder. So I gave them, you know, brain over binge or whatever. I'm like, giving someone an entire book to read is very overwhelming. It's best instead to give them excerpts or short videos or clips, things that they can digest because that's a big commitment and people usually don't end up following through and then we can feel even worse. It's almost like we're setting ourselves and them up for failure. So just say no to the whole book thing. Okay. Like a full book, but we can definitely, you know, read this page. Could you, it really explains what I'm going through. That could be wonderful um, and helpful. So, okay. I just wanted to say that, but you've been communicating. That's awesome for anybody out there who's going through something and hasn't done that that's part of the initial work is like giving them an opportunity to understand by explaining what you're going through, how it's feeling as much as you feel able to. Okay. Second tip, have them come into therapy for a session or two. I know that's uncomfortable, but let your therapist do some of this heavy lifting, some of this psychoeducation, as we call it. I find not all the time, but let's say six out of 10, that the partners of my patients have a tough time understanding what their partner is saying to try to educate them because there's it's too emotionally charged or maybe it's just too much for them at the time or you know they've used some words they don't even understand so sometimes it's better for it to come from someone who they kind of see like as a professional right we're kind of like up on this pedestal and then let us educate because that's something we all do regardless of you know i know i'm online doing it all the time but therapists in general do a lot of what we call psychoeducation let your therapist do that job for you and explain how, why it's important. Give time for them to ask any questions. You can add things in if you feel like your therapist isn't, you know, didn't describe it quite the way that you would. All those things. Bringing them into session and talking to your therapist, obviously ahead of time, I'm really wanting them to understand X, Y, or Z. That's the next best thing. Communicate clearly with, you know, that's first. Second, bring them into session. And then third and the hardest and kind of what you're dealing with now is knowing that we can't force them to understand. We can't make them understand, right? At least it sounds like they might be trying to, like, it sounds like they're supportive, right? And they kind of get the need for help. They just don't understand what that really means, right? They think it's like, oh, you're just going through a rough patch. You need some support there. It's kind of like they're minimizing it. And we can't force people to understand or to want to understand. And if if they still don't and they still aren't and it just feels exhausting to us and also, again, minimizing and invalidating, then we have to decide what we want to do next because we can't make them. We can only make decisions for ourselves. So does this mean that we stop talking about it with our partner? Does this mean that we don't want to be with that partner anymore? 
Does this mean that we need to get into couples counseling? What is it? Because there's going to have to be another step in order, you know, because you're not happy with the way that it is and you feel like they're not getting it. And then we're going through the cycle of them saying something that's hurtful and then you feel invalidated, you know, round, around, 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 around we go. And so, yeah, you have to figure out what's the best thing for you. I find couples counseling to be incredibly beneficial. If you think, oh, well, it's not that bad yet. Do not wait until you feel it is bad enough. That's what people usually do. And they wait way too fucking long. And then they come in when the relationship is already over. Like one person's already out the door and they're just going to therapy. Like, because they said they'd quote unquote, give it a try, you know, don't wait. Um, because that can help too. And then that gives you weekly sessions to talk about what's happening and to give them another opportunity each and every week to understand. And and maybe, I don't know, like I said, some videos or some things like that might be helpful too. I find sometimes the people who don't quite get mental illness or understand it is either A, because they've never read about it, had anybody in their life that struggled with it, or maybe haven't struggled enough themselves to fully understand, or B, have grown up in a family where it wasn't okay to feel bad or to to struggle. It was kind of like minimized or like, eh, da, 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 we got enough shit going on. We don't have time for you to be like having a hard time, like get yourself together. You know, a lot of people grew up in environments like that. And so it might take them a little bit longer to openly admit that, yeah, life sucks sometimes. And okay, I get where you're coming from. And I understand why phobias exist and, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. You're doing the best you can. Hang in there and decide what's the next best step for you. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This says, Hey, Katie, have you ever had a patient or person in general tell you a trauma and you couldn't help but think that it shouldn't really have been traumatized or it really shouldn't have traumatized them? Hmm. Good question especially if you yourself had a similar experience. I know therapists don't judge, but there must be some traumas you hear about where you're thinking, "Whoa, that's really awful. Are there just any, are there any where you think it sounds like it wasn't as bad of experience or that the person is just very sensitive? Also, as you hear about so much trauma, do you ever compare them? For an example, a patient talking about physical abuse might not think of another patient who had it much worse. I know you're trained not to judge like this, but you're human too. And there must be some traumas that really hit you hard and others that are just objectively less severe. I've honestly never thought that. And I can say that, I'm, you, you guys know I'm honest with you. I've never had a patient share a trauma and me think that it really shouldn't have traumatized them. I find honestly the reverse is way more common where someone will share something with me that they're like, oh yeah, and by the way, and it's like this, offhand comment. And I almost always like, I feel like 99.999% of the time I'm like, I'm trying to hide my, oh my God, that had to be so painful face because it's, I feel like it's just in, it's like innate in our trauma response to minimize and invalidate our experience so that we can keep going through it. We're like, oh, it's not that bad don't worry, I'll push through. I can get through this, right? We do that. We talk to ourselves that way. And it's part of our, our like ability. It's our resilience, right? Ability to weather life storms. It's that high functioning part, like a white knuckle push through. It's not that big of a deal. And so we talk it down, 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 down so that we don't think it's that big of a deal so that we can continue forward. And so by the time you come into my office and you finally feel okay enough to tell me what took place, I'm almost always like impressed with your resilience and your ability to, to manage what happened. And I don't think, um, I don't really compare 
I know you, it makes sense. Like people compare, humans compare. That's what happens. Not really, not when it comes to therapy, because there, it's always more than just like the traumas that took place. It's like what else happened and how we weathered it and what resources we had. There's just so many factors. I don't ever hear one person's and think, well, that sounds as bad as the person that was in here last the last hour. There's something interesting about being a therapist. And I'd love to hear from other therapists if you feel this way too. But like when I'm in with one patient, I'm not considering another. I, I know that that might be sound weird, but it's like that pa- person's time is over and they have their homework and I've done my notes and now I'm moving into this person and what's going on in their life. And I'm just very invested and I want to hear how they're doing. And I'm there with them in that space, listening, holding, you know, what's going on and what they're telling me. Um, I know that might not be the answer that you're wanting, but that's really the truth. And yes, I have patients who are very sensitive, but when I, when I tell you that that doesn't really matter, that's what I mean. Because if you're very sensitive and like a lot of my BPD patients are very sensitive, but that doesn't make their experience less truthful or valid. Do you know what I mean? Because that sensitivity is what's making our life so painful, making things hard for us. And we're still experiencing it as if a trauma occurred or something very wounding And even though I might not find that wounding or traumatizing, that doesn't mean that their experience wasn't that. That's just not how it works. Trauma or upset occurs to the person experiencing it and no one gets to question that. That's not, that's just not how it works because I'm not you and I can't feel it like you feel it. I take you at your word and I want to seek to understand your experience because that's where the healing begins, right? And what's it, I don't know, that just, it's like, doesn't make any sense to me why I would ever even go down that path of even thinking that because it's not beneficial to anybody. And it's, yeah, extremely anti-therapeutic. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. And I mean, it's a very therapisty answer, but it's really honestly the truth. Now there was a comment on this and says, as an add-on, I know emotional abuse is abuse too, but do therapists sometimes think it isn't as bad as physical abuse? Not at all. How do you decide when it's emotional abuse and what's just normal interpersonal tensions? I often find myself even wishing that I'd been physically abused or had some scars or something just to know that it was real and that I'm not imagining or overreacting. Thanks for all you do. I hope this question makes sense. Totally makes sense. And it's incredibly common, those of us who've been emotionally abused, to because there aren't actual physical wounds, to struggle to validate our experience and think, oh, it wasn't really that bad. And people always depict emotional abuse as just like someone shouting at us, like a parent that's like putting us down. It can be that. And I'm not minimizing that by any means. I'm just saying people only depict it in this one fashion when it can look like a lot of things. It can look like manipulation, can look like neglect, right? Emotional neglect is emotional abuse. Hello? It can look like um, kind of small slights where instead of like shouting these put downs, it can just be like, oh, well, you know, like, let's say we didn't make the varsity team and coming home to a parent instead of a parent saying, I'm so sorry, that must have been a bummer for you. Are you okay being on JV? Do you want to, you know, asking questions? How do you feel? Blah, blah. Instead, uh, an emotionally abusive parent would say something like, I knew you'd never make it anyway. I don't know why you even bothered with that. Right. Um, or they might even like in the neglect form, like not take us to practice or not want to take us to the trout. You're never going to make it anyway. I don't know why I would stress myself out trying to get you there on time, right? Those those kinds of undercuts, um, you know, there's a lot of other ways that it can look and like how it can show. But I want you to know that 
it is abuse and it can really erode our sense of self and our confidence and essentially for lack of any better terms fuck us up just as much as any other type of abuse it's abuse is abuse is abuse and it's all terrible and the people who do it to others like there's a special place in hell for them and yeah so those are my thoughts <laughs> really went down that rabbit hole real quick um but the other question says how do you decide what is emotional abuse and what is just normal interpersonal tensions it depends on I mean, a lot of factors. When it's apparent to a child, there's there's parenting and there's actual, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like you can not, I don't know, punish isn't the word, but I guess just like parenting techniques and tools and ways that you can reprimand a child or hold boundaries is probably is a better way of putting it is like children need boundaries. They need restrictions. They need play things that are okay and not okay to do right and that's just part of being a healthy parent is is holding those boundaries for your child well i said you could do this for 20 more minutes it's been 25 i've given you five extra minutes it's time to stop you know and holding to it um and without that or i guess outside of that like that containment that's where we can fall into like you know, we actually know that spanking children, even if it it's like the punishment, you know, because you feel like you're parenting and you're holding, keeping your child in line. We actually know through research that that kind of, they call that, um, like, I think it's a positive reinforcement is what they would call, or no, a, a negative reinforcement. Sorry, positive would be like giving them something. A negative reinforcement. We find that that isn't even through, this. we've known this forever. I don't know why people thought that this would like help children learn and be okay as a parent. I'm not trying to judge anybody who's a parent. I don't have children. I don't pretend to know what that's like. I'm sure on the daily is super trying and it's difficult. But what I'm saying is we know that spanking and reprimanding children that way doesn't help them learn. It's actually less effective. A more effective way is to take something away or to reinforce the positive. Um, And so anyway, I'm getting off topic. But back to the question is how do we know when something is you know interpersonal tension or actually abuse interpersonal tension is like i had a disagreement and they a parent held a boundary like i told you you need to be home and now you're grounded for a week right those are things that actually are effective and helpful and we can get into arguments where we disagree but it becomes emotional abuse when it's like malicious when there's manipulation when there's like putting someone down like it's the the role remember the adult is the parent when we talk about parents and children the children can do whatever they want they can say whatever but the adult doesn't have to stoop to their level you hold it high as the adult where you're like i'm the parent i'm holding this boundary you can be mad about it but you knew what the rules were and you broke them you know it's it's when it goes into personal attacks name calling put downs uh slights that just kind of dig at someone that's when it's it's not interpersonal tensions it's emotional abuse does that make sense i know it might be difficult but i have a video also you can get on uh, youtube and just search emotional abuse katie morton i have a few of them that you can watch where you know like the signs and you can know what it'll look like okay and if you hear any barking roxy is she's a very spirited girl and she's outside very excited probably because another dog is barking okay moving on to question number six this question says hi katie How do we go about ending relationships with narcissistic parents? I'm due to be moving away for university in September, and I have absolutely no intention of coming back or seeing her ever again. Good for you. But how do I even begin to have that conversation? Ooh, I just, 
I don't just want to move away, block her number, and it to be over with. But equally, I feel like texting, she'll um, texting that she'll never be seeing me ever again is cowardly, huh? Communicating in person never goes well. It just results in her name calling, making that situation about her. Welcome to narcissism, telling me how much more shit she's been through than me, etc. I've decided I'm ending the relationship, but how do I go about healthfully having the conversation? Thanks, Katie. The tricky thing. And someone left a comment on this that was beautiful. Um, so if anybody wants to go digging back in, I'll do my best to kind of, I'll add that in at the end because I thought it was a great, uh, they had a conversation with their therapist who broke this down and I thought it was really great. But my thought goes to healthily having the conversation. The thing to remember is that we're only 50% of that conversation and chances are that other person is not capable, that narcissistic parent is not capable of healthily having any conversation. So it's really not something that we can do because we don't have 100% control. Does that make sense? We can't make a parent be less of an asshole and not name call and not unravel and start telling us all the reasons that we should be more respectful. They've done so much for us. Oh my God, you know how hard this has been for me. We can't make them not do that, right? Going back to even that first question, we can't make people be better or be more capable. We can only meet them where they're at. And the place where your parent is at right now is actually not a place to have a healthy conversation. And you just leaving. You don't even have to text that you're not going to see her ever again. That's not really cowardly. It's actually healthy and it's smart because again, we cannot, we can't make people be better. We can't make people want or even be able to have healthy relationships. We just can't. There's a reason this relationship is ending. There's a reason that you don't ever want to see them again. It's because it's been so manipulative and so toxic and hurtful that in order for you to live a life, you can't have them be part of it because it's just so emotionally uh, just, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. It's just so emotionally exhausting and painful. And so the person who left a comment on this said they talked with their therapist and this was a beautiful, their therapist did a great job. So kudos. Their therapist said, okay, so if you were, you know, going to text them, what would you think that, you know, are you expecting a response? Well, yeah, I would assume they respond. Well, how do you think they would respond? And how would that be helpful? And it was kind of this like downward arrow questioning is what we call it in therapy where you're like, okay, if that, then what? Okay, so if you texted uh, something nice, like, um, you know, I love you. Our relationship just has never been healthy for me. And so, you know, I just wanted you to know that I, I love you and I've appreciated the things you've done for me, but I'll, I, this will be where our relationship ends as kind as we can possibly be to tell someone it's over, right? Um, what would they say back? And then if they, you probably already can think about the things they would say back. You're so disrespectful. How dare you? You know, fuck you. Who knows? Depends on what they, how they talk to you, but you just never know when it comes to narcissists, they might just explode into chaos. Um, then what would you say back to that? And what would be the benefit of that? What good is that? That then they know it's over ahead of time so they can shit talk you more? Or are we hoping to keep this conversation going? And then are we stuck in that cycle forever? 
where they always text you at least like once or twice a year for some God forsaken reason. You didn't call me on Mother's Day or Father's Day or you're so ungrateful or happy birthday even, happy new year, you know, some random ass way to try to keep you in the loop. Narcissists have a way of keeping people connected so that they can, you know, get whatever it is they need, their narcissistic supply telling people that they're, you know, oh, I talked to my son and my daughter. Well, I'm so important, but you know, whatever it is, right? There's this way that they can keep doing that. And I think I'm going to just put this out here. And I don't mean this as any judgment, just like from my experience with this kind of situation. I think your urge to still have that conversation just shows how unhealthy that relationship has been and how it's going to take us some healing to get out of that cycle of wanting to stay in touch and wanting to to be able to keep things healthy with a person who isn't capable. Does that make sense? There's sometimes this, especially in families, but even in other relationships, there can come a time when we recognize, and it's really hard, you guys. I don't want you to think that this is easy. Uh, the The grief that's going to come with this, you know, is heavy, but there's this time when we realize that they're not capable. A narcissistic parent is not capable of having healthy, happy conversations without some maligning, some little jab, some passive aggressive bullshit, right? They just aren't capable. And unless they want to work on themselves and get into their own treatment so that they can better manage those urges, it's going to keep happening. And therefore, us having a healthfully like a healthy conversation about us not having a relationship with them is simply impossible because they're not able to meet us there they can't they're incapable their ability it's surpasses their ability does that make sense and i say that in the most loving way i know this is really hard and i'm incredibly proud of you for even making this decision and i think it's a healthy decision for you but you even said that communicating person never goes well. She name called, makes a situation about her telling you how, blah, 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 right? This will be no different. And there's no way to healthfully do it. We just have to do it. And I know that that might hang over you and think that you should reach out at some other point and let her know. I'm telling you right now, no. Unless, again, unless she decides to change, which we're not waiting around for it, she could try to reach out years in the future and be like, I've been in therapy for two years. I didn't realize how much I'd done to you. You know, that might be some, then I might tell you, hey, you can try to engage with this again. But that's about the only way I would let you engage. And I would also tell you to only engage in her therapy session. I'd tell you, like, you could go to therapy. That'd be it with her. That's it. And so long story short, because I could talk about this forever is I really think that we just, you just have to move away and block her number and make that decision for yourself and then grieve it, be sad about it. It sucks that we didn't have the parent that we needed and deserved and that she's not capable of having a healthy conversation with us about things and that it had to be this way because like anybody out there knows, there's just no way to have a healthy ending. If you need to let her know, just know what's going to come back to you. It's going to be, you know, could be really hate-filled. I just want to make sure you're okay with that, you know? Okay. Now, question number seven is not really a question, but I wanted to read it anyway because I liked it. It says, hello, Katie. And this had a lot of thumbs up too. I'm not just selecting it for shits and giggles, although I could. It says, um, 
I have a therapist, but I feel more drawn to ask you questions instead of going to her with my questions. I love the community and knowing that I'm not alone in my struggles. And I love the way you answer these questions and make um, us feel so seen and validated. I'm so glad that's always my number one goal. And um, you're so passionate and real in your answers, which is something that we don't often see in therapy sessions. Yeah, it's a little different this way, isn't it? Thank you for all that you do. I hope one day to feel just as comfortable talking to my therapist as I am asking questions for this podcast. And the reason I wanted to talk about this that wasn't really a question, rather a statement, is because I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think there's some there's a two parts to it. Number one, we're not sitting down together in a room, so you can feel less on the spot or even less uh, vulnerable, right? Because I'm not like looking you in the eye. I don't know your name and everything about you, right? There's a little bit of anonymity. And man, disclosures thrive in anonymity, right? We can, there was that book that came out. This is like eons ago, you guys. It was like people sent in postcards with like their deepest, darkest secrets. I forget what it was called. Does anybody know? You can put it in the comments. But uh, Sean's sister, I don't know if she got it for us or she had it. I'd have to look through our books. Anyway, it was super, I think she had it. I think someone got it for her. But anyway, these, the things people wrote in blow your mind anonymity, right? I can say these things that are super painful or super hard or things that I would don't even want to admit to myself because nobody's going to know that I did it. And I think in our community, we have a little bit of that where you feel a little bit distant so that it's not, excuse me, I burped and I'm sorry if you heard that. Um, It's not in our face. We don't have to maybe even fully admit it to ourselves. I feel like this is a nice, healthy, safe space to kind of preliminarily put things out there and see how it goes. And I think it's really beautiful. And that's why I love our community. I also love the conversations that you guys have in the comments. I love when I'm looking for questions that some of you've tried to answer or, hey, for me, it was this. It's beautiful. I love it. It is a great reminder that we're not alone and it can be extremely validating. And I'm just so proud of each and every one of you for helping cultivate this community and bring it to what it is. Um, but I think, you know, that that anonymity is kind of why we can be drawn. And also the fact that you, a lot of you have known me for a long time, or you can watch a ton of content and get a feel for me. And so I would hypothesize you could even maybe guess what I'm going to say or have an idea of what my answer is going to be. And so even in asking it, the risk doesn't seem as high. She's like, oh, I kind of know Katie enough. And she usually says something along these lines, you know? And so that can be really helpful too. Um, but I love you all. I'm glad that I can be this like safe space. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm hoping that you can soon feel just as comfortable talking to your therapist as you are with me. Um, but I'm I'm always, you know, glad to be that kind of intermediary or that safe space where you can at least get it out there so it's not stuck in your head and you can get some validation and support from our wonderful and beautiful community. Hugs and kisses, okay? Let's move on to question number eight says, hello, Miss Katie. Howdy do. says, you recently became a dog owner. I did. And she was, bar- oh, she's already napping now. She's, she barked to nap. That's the dog life. Okay. Um, and it makes me so happy for you because it's so rewarding to have a dog in our lives to love and to t- take care of. I agree. I also enjoyed that connection of being do- a dog owner until recently. Last year, within eight months, I lost my three dogs due to old age and disease. Oh, I'm so sorry. Two lived with lived to be 17 years old and the other one lived to be 15 years old. I love them as the children that I will never have and they were my family to me. My dogs were the only ones genuinely happy to see me and never judged me or answered me with frustration when I didn't make sense. I know, aren't they beautiful? 
My doggies could brighten a bad day, especially when I was feeling anxious or upset. I could talk to one of them and trust him with my issues. Isn't it funny how we talked to her? I talked to Roxy all the time. And with a simple lick to dry my tears, he reassured me I was okay. To put it differently, these dogs gave me a purpose in life. They made me feel okay, but now they're gone and I'm truly heartbroken. My dogs gave me so much needed love and support and companionship that no other human has given me. My dogs especially helped me deal with all of this living due to COVID. Mm -hmm. Now I ask, how can I navigate the loss of a beloved pet? Their deaths have been more traumatic and painful in comparison to other human losses or um, than others, others of my past pets. Why is this? Because the connection. Pe many people don't understand the connection and the bond that we form with a dog or any kind of pet. Therefore, it's not easy for me to talk about it. And it's so in invalidated by society and people around us. I can't just simply replace them. Like many have told me they were living things, not a piece of furniture. I feel completely empty and alone without them. Please help. Thanks so much. First of all, I am so, so sorry for your loss. Ugh. The best way to deal is to let yourself grieve. You lost a family, you lost three family members. It's painful. And within eight months, man, my, my grandma passed away recently. Um, and the, the heaviness of grief, I always forget how fucking horrible it is until it happens again. Um, I don't want to cry. So I'm going to pull myself. We'll get through this. Um, I don't, I'm sorry that where you live or the people you engage with don't understand the loss of a beloved pet, because I feel like my friends and the people that I live around, like people do. And it's seen as a member of the family and people are devastated and it is sad and people should understand. And I think more and more people are because they're just there. They are another member of the family. It's just like losing my grandma or a, you know, a partner, a friend, they were there for you. And I just encourage you to allow yourself to grieve allow yourself to feel it. It's okay to cry. It's also okay to like one of my friends who lost her, she had her, her puppy, I think Margot was Margot 10, maybe 13 years old. I think when she had to unfortunately put her to sleep, she had congestive heart failure and it just was getting worse. It was devastating to my friend Megan and so hard for her. And she would for, I mean, she had a horrible time cried and had really, I mean, I mean, I checked on her. I was worried. It's hard. Um, but then she started looking at other t dogs that kind of look like Margot Shih Tzu's online. And um, she was like, I can feel myself kind of pulling out of it. And I think it's just like grief with anything. Grief is weird. It doesn't go come and go like all of a sudden it's here and then it's gone. It kind of hangs around and it changes form and it'll be devastating at the beginning. Then it gets a little lighter, then it can be harder. And you know, it's okay to feel that. It's okay to express that. If people ask why you're sad, say, I lost three pets. It's been devastating. They were my best friends. If people don't understand that, those aren't your people. I think we have tons of people in our community who would 100% understand that. We have lots of members who have cats, dogs, guinea pigs, all sorts of pets who are members of their family. And it's a, it's devastating to lose one. And I am so sorry. But I think allowing yourself to grieve, allowing yourself to feel it is part of the healing process. And you will come out of it. I know it doesn't feel like you will, but I can tell you from someone who's lost pets and people in my life, it, it's heavy and then it gets a little lighter and a little lighter and then it becomes this kind of baggage that you carry around but is manageable 
And then there's things that you'll bump into or see that will remind you of them and it's devastating again, but it gets a little easier. And I wish I could give you like this, it's gonna be okay, don't worry. Uh, grief is weird. And I stumble across things of my dad's or one of my, like my friend Megan said that like even having Margot's stuff in the house, she like couldn't bear to get rid of it, but then seeing it was, it was it's hard. And so I don't want you to think that it's like, you're supposed to just snap out of it and get another one. You're not ready. Um, even my hairdresser, Sarah, lost her dog. Oh, her, uh, was her dog's name Ruby? Maybe it was Roxy. I forget. Um, but this was years ago. It was like eight years ago, but it was devastating. And she, it took her forever before she even felt okay. And then she was going to get another dog and then decided she couldn't. And I just want you to know that wherever you're at is okay. Allow yourself the time to grieve. And if people in your life in person aren't acceptable of, or aren't accepting of this and aren't validating, it's also okay to get online and talk to other people who are, because sometimes we just need someone to acknowledge that it sucks. It's hard and it's sad. And I'm sorry for your loss. Now there was a comment on this that how do you overcome a loss of a pet which we just talked about. And also, how do I manage the fear of suddenly losing my horse like it happened in the past? I keep thinking that if he dies and I'm not out of my depression yet, I'm not going to be able to make it. Thank you so much. I think part of this is, is it's, it's anxiety, uh, fear-based. You know, anxiety is so fear-based, right? And you suddenly lost a horse before, so you're afraid it's going to happen again. And that's that's a a concern that makes sense, right? And I think part of what I would challenge you to do is to check your facts. How common is what happened to the last horse? How common is that? How likely is it that it would happen with yours? Are there warning signs? Could we have the vet come out and check your horse out? Make sure that they don't have maybe something that could lead to whatever that was. Are there things that we could we check our facts? Could we play it out? I know that sounds really painful, but play it out. Best case scenario, they live to be 100. Worst case scenario, they die suddenly like it happened before. And what's the most likely scenario? Now, I know that these exercises can be difficult or we can be like, but I don't want to think about it. That ignoring of that anxiety and that worry is only making it worse. And so if we can just kind of hit it head on, consider it, play it out, think it through, take action where we can. Sometimes taking that action can get us out of this stress response that we're in. Where we're like, I don't know what to do. Ugh, and that worry, that like overwhelm, if there's some action we can take, let's take that action. That movement can help us. So consider those things. And I hope that it will just alleviate a little bit of that worry. But whenever we love something, there can always be that worry that it could go away. But I would challenge you with this, that in the worry that it's going to go away, are we able to enjoy the present? Because usually the answer is no. And I think it's sometimes better to allow ourselves to enjoy the present, be there with them, love on them, make every minute amazing and worthwhile. And I think that in and of itself can be very healing. Okay. And I'm sorry for your loss too. Our final question, question number nine says, Hey Katie, if someone doesn't experience something as traumatic is it still trauma? So if someone experiences something that's terrible, for example, sexual assault, and they are not traumatized by it, is it still considered a trauma? Yes. Now, the the being traumatized or not being traumatized comes from our own level of resilience. And someone left a comment below this that was a beautiful answer to it also. But our level of resilience, meaning our ability to weather life storms, right? Things are going to happen. And can we like ride that wave and be okay? We might feel a little more tired than usual or a little more stressed out, but we're able to get through, right? 
that level of resilience is what is going to determine whether the trauma that happened ends up leading to or developing into PTSD or another stress response. We could have acute stress disorder. We could have complex PTSD, anxiety, depression. We could have a lot of mental illnesses come out of it. But that's even if it's not traumatic to us, it was still a trauma or it was still a a horrifying or a stressful event, right? We could call it any number of things, but it's still going to be a trauma. It's just like, let's say you and I go through something together and you're fine. You don't have PTSD and I'm like devastated. This happens with siblings a lot and it all goes back to our level of resilience. So in short, if someone doesn't experience something as traumatic, is it still a trauma? Yes. It's just their level of resilience was such that it did not turn into a traumatic experience for them. They did not develop PTSD. Does that make sense? I hope that that does. And yeah, so I guess that's that's really it. That's the answer. I hope you found this helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this uh, podcast. If you find it helpful, tell a friend about it. That really helps me out and leave reviews wherever you listen to your podcast and where they allow you to leave such reviews. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much for all of your questions and all of your support. I love you and I'll see you next time. Bye. about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions.